0: This is Democracy Now.
1: The events of that day felt like a wake-up call for me and many others, that political violence is real. The worst part is that our elected leaders allowed this to happen. And yet this week, people who encouraged and even attended the insurrection are now taking their places as leaders in the new House majority.
0: Two years ago today, supporters of Donald Trump violently stormed the Capitol in an attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The January 6th insurrection shut down Congress, as lawmakers had to flee for safety. Today, part of Congress is effectively shut down, again, as Republican lawmakers cannot agree on a House Speaker. Until then, no member of the House can be sworn in. This all comes as five members of the Trump-backed Proud Boys are on trial for seditious conspiracy. We'll talk about all this with Andy Campbell, author of We Are Proud Boys, how a right-wing street gang ushered in a new era of American extremism. Then, as Russian President Vladimir Putin unilaterally declares a 36-hour ceasefire in Ukraine to mark Russian Orthodox Christmas— We'll hear from Bishop William Barber on why he supports a Christmas truce on both sides. A ceasefire
2: is not the same as an end to war, but it can set the stage for the more long-term diplomatic action that can lead to a long-term peace. A ceasefire, for as long as it holds, means that no one is being killed by war, and that means maybe, just maybe... The difficult work of beginning serious negotiations can go forward.
0: All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Now! democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden announced Thursday the United States will begin blocking migrants from Haiti, Nicaragua and Cuba from applying for asylum if they're apprehended crossing the U.S.-Mexico border outside of ports of entry. The asylum seekers will instead be expelled to Mexico without due process as part of an expansion of the contested Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy. This comes as the Supreme Court set to decide Title 42's fate in its next session. Biden also announced a small number of Haitians, Nicaraguans and Cubans will qualify for a program granting them temporary permission to live and work in the U.S. if they apply for the relief from their home countries and already have financial sponsors in the U.S. The announcement came just days before Biden's schedule to visit El Paso, Texas Sunday to meet with local officials. It'll be Biden's first trip to the U.S.-Mexico border as president. During his remarks Thursday, Biden made no mention of the harsh U.S. sanctions that have contributed to poverty in Nicaragua and Cuba, nor did he acknowledge the catastrophic legacy of U.S interventions
1: in Haiti. My message is this. If you're trying to leave Cuba, Nicaragua, or Haiti, you have, and we, or have agreed to begin a journey to America, do not, do not just show up at the border. Stay where you are and apply legally from there. Starting today, if you don't apply through the legal process, you will not be eligible for this new parole program.
0: In a statement, the American Civil Liberties Union said, quote, Title 42 expulsions were already an unjustifiable misuse of the public health laws. Let's be clear, nothing requires the administration to expand Title 42 while it claims to be preparing for its ending. There is simply no reason why the benefits of a new parole program for Cubans, Nicaraguans and Haitians must be conditioned on the expansion of dangerous expulsions, the ACLU said. The House of Representatives adjourned for the third consecutive day Thursday evening without electing a House speaker, after Republican leader Kevin McCarthy failed to gain the needed 218 votes after 11 ballots, 20 far-right Republicans continue to oppose McCarthy, even after he offered the major concessions, though reports emerged late Thursday. Some holdouts may be on the verge of throwing their support behind McCarthy. All 212 Democrats back New York Congressmember Hakeem Jeffries at every round of voting over the past three days, until a House speaker is elected. No member of the House of Representatives can be sworn in. We'll have the latest on this story after headlines. President Biden is delivering a speech today to mark the two-year anniversary of the deadly January 6th Capitol insurrection. Biden will also award presidential citizens' medals to 12 people who responded to the insurrection and Trump's attacks on democracy after the 2020 election. Among them, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, a pair of mother-daughter election workers from Georgia who received death threats and torrents of online abuse from Trump supporters. President Trump again attacked them this past week on social media. Another honoree is former Washington, D.C., police officer Michael Fanon who is beaten and electrocuted with a taser by the right-wing mob who attacked the Capitol. Fanon called the experience a wake-up call about the dangers of political violence.
1: People who encouraged and even attended the insurrection are now taking their places as leaders in the new House majority. People like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said insurrectionists would have won on January 6th if she had been involved or representative Matt Gates who encouraged voters to arm themselves at the polls.
0: On Thursday, the partner of deceased Capitol Police officer Brian Sicknick, who died one day after responding to the insurrection, sued Donald Trump and two rioters who attacked Sicknick for his wrongful death. Sicknick died after suffering two strokes. The medical examiner said the events of January 6, quote, played a role in his condition. We'll have more on the second anniversary of the Capitol insurrection after headlines. South Carolina's Supreme Court struck down the state's six-week ban Thursday, ruling it violates South Carolina's Constitution. Meanwhile, Democratic lawmakers in Minnesota have advanced a bill to codify abortion rights in their state, where the procedure is still legal, after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June of last year. But in a blow for reproductive rights, Idaho's Supreme Court upheld a near-total ban on abortion. Idaho's High Court also reaffirmed a law allowing some family members of a fetus to sue health workers who provide an abortion, and a law criminalizing health providers who perform the procedure after cardiac activity is detected, which can happen as early as four to six weeks into a pregnancy." Russian President Vladimir Putin has unilaterally declared a 36-hour ceasefire in Ukraine to mark Russian Orthodox Christmas. Despite the declaration, fighting continued today along the Eastern Front. In Kyiv, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky rejected Putin's truce, saying Russia wants to use Christmas as a pretext to stop Ukrainian advances in the Russian-occupied Donbass region.
3: They now
2: want to use Christmas as a cover, albeit briefly, to stop the advances of our boys in Donbass and bring equipment, munitions, and mobilized troops closer to our positions.
0: United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said Thursday he would welcome any truce in Ukraine during Orthodox Christmas, but warned talks between Moscow and Kyiv to bring the war to a permanent end are not yet possible.
3: I think we are still not uh, in a situation where we can see peace in the immediate horizon. Peace that we believe will have to come one day and peace based on the UN Charter and
1: international law.
0: Guterres' remarks came after Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan offered to mediate an end to the war in Ukraine. This week, the U.S., Germany and France announced plans to supply Ukraine with armored combat vehicles, including French-made light tanks and U.S.-made Bradley fighting vehicles. The 50 Bradleys would be part of a new U.S. military aid package to Ukraine worth nearly $3 billion. The U.N. Security Council Thursday called for maintaining status quo at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque, following a highly criticized visit to the site by Israel's new extremist security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir. But the Security Council did not commit to any action in response to the provocation by Israel. For decades, the Al-Aqsa Mosque has only allowed Muslims to worship at the holy site. Meanwhile, a new proposal by the freshly installed far-right government coalition led by Benjamin Netanyahu would sharply limit judicial powers by allowing a simple majority of lawmakers to invalidate Israeli Supreme Court decisions. Elsewhere, the longest-serving Palestinian prisoner in Israel, Karim Yunus, was freed Thursday after spending more than 40 years behind bars. Yunus was arrested in 1983 over the killing of an Israeli soldier. He was welcomed home in his village, Avada, which is located within Israel. Yunus also visited the gravesite of his mother, who died just eight months ago. He spoke when he was released.
3: It is clear for everyone now that the Israeli government, especially the current one, is seeking to subdue our people. They want us to be their slaves. They want us to be nothing, so they can use us always. We say that this is not going to happen, and they will not get what they want.
0: Here in the United States, the nation is reporting. Harvard's Kennedy School of Government has withdrawn a fellowship from the former head of Human Rights Watch, Kenneth Roth, over Roth and Human Rights Watch's condemnation of Israeli human rights abuses. China says it will reopen its border with Hong Kong this weekend after three years of pandemic restrictions that left Hong Kong largely cut off from the Chinese mainland. The reopening comes after the World Health Organization accused China of downplaying the severity of a massive COVID-19 surge that's going largely unreported in China's official statistics. This is the WHO's Emergencies Director, Mike Ryan.
2: We believe that the, the current numbers being being published from, from China underrepresent the true impact of the disease in terms of hospital admissions, in terms of uh, ICU admissions and particularly in terms of death.
0: China has been reporting daily covid deaths in the single digits, even as experts say it's in the midst of a surge that could kill hundreds of thousands of people. Meanwhile, the European Union has urged member nations to require travelers from China to show proof of a recent negative coronavirus test and suggested governments should expand genomic surveillance at airports for new coronavirus variants. Chinese officials rejected the restrictions as discriminatory and politically motivated. They also denied underrepresenting the severity of China's COVID outbreak. In Utah— Eight people were found dead at a home in the town of Enoch on Wednesday, in an apparent murder-suicide. Authorities say 42-year-old Michael Haight fatally shot his mother-in-law, his wife and their five children before turning the gun on himself. The killings came two weeks after Haight's spouse filed for divorce. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have already been 12 mass shootings in the United States since the start of the new year. And here in New York, Uber drivers held a one-day strike Thursday as they continue to demand the ride-hailing corporation drop its lawsuit aimed at blocking a pay raise approved by the Taxi and Limousine Commission. It's the second 24-hour strike by Uber drivers since wage increases failed to go into effect in December. Democracy Now! spoke with Bayrevi Desai, the executive director of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance at a picket line outside Uber's New York headquarters, Thursday.
2: This was a raise that was in the hands of the drivers. The city of New York voted on it after almost a year of public hearings. Uber, in the middle
3: of the night, snatched this raise out of the drivers' hands to put it in their own pockets. Meanwhile, in the same lawsuit Ubers filed to stop this raise for the drivers, they've admitted that they've been charging the public in New York City 48 percent more since 2019. You know, um the only ones that haven't gotten this increase are the drivers, and they're the ones that really desperately need it.
0: And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now, democracynow.org, the war and peace report. Coming up, we look at the second anniversary of the January sixth insurrection and how far right Republicans have effectively shut down part of Congress again. Stay with us. Echo
3: start, is it Trembling noises that come too soon
0: Spatial movement which seems to me Resonating a mask of fear Hollow talk any hollow girl Thoughts that I've forgotten Choir of the Young Believers founder Janis Noya Makarjanas died late last month at the age of 39 after a short illness. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today marks two years since the January 6 Capitol insurrection, when President Donald Trump incited thousands of supporters to violently storm Congress in an attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The attack on the Capitol briefly shut down Congress, as lawmakers fled for their safety from the mob, which included members of the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers and other violent extremist groups, many of them armed. Two years later, part of Congress has been effectively shut down again. This time, because a group of far right Republicans, including many who supported the January 6th insurrection, have blocked Republican leader Kevin McCarthy's attempt to become House Speaker. This means no member of the House of Representatives can be sworn in. Over the past three days, the House has held 11 votes. To choose a speaker, McCarthy has failed each time to win the needed 218 votes to become speaker, despite making numerous concessions to his critics in the so-called Freedom Caucus. This is now the longest speaker election since 1859, just before the Civil War. Meanwhile, President Biden is preparing to give a major speech today, marking the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. He will also award Presidential Citizens' Medals to 12 people who responded to the insurrection and Trump's attacks on democracy after the 2020 election, among them Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, a mother-daughter pair of election workers from Georgia who received death threats and torrents of online abuse from Trump supporters. Another honoree will be former Washington, D.C., police officer Michael Fanone, who was beaten and electrocuted with a taser by the right-wing mob. Fanone spoke Thursday and made the link between the January 6th insurrection and the congressional chaos playing out today.
1: But if I could guarantee one thing about the new House majority, it's this. This is just the beginning. This type of chaos will happen every single day in the House. As some of the most extreme politicians our country has ever seen hold our democracy hostage. I should know. Tomorrow marks two years since the day I almost died defending the Capitol from people who thought overthrowing the government was a good idea. The events of that day felt like a wake-up call for me and many others, that political violence is real. The worst part is that our elected leaders allowed this to happen. And yet this week, people who encouraged and even attended the insurrection are now taking their places as leaders in the new House majority. People like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said insurrectionists would have won on January 6th if she had been involved. Or Representative Matt Gates, who encouraged voters to arm themselves at the polls.
0: That was former Washington, D.C., police officer Michael Fanone. On Thursday, the partner of the deceased Capitol Police officer Brian Sicknick, who died one day after responding to the insurrection, sued Donald Trump and two of the rioters who attacked Sicknick for his wrongful death. Brian Sicknick died after suffering two strokes. The medical examiner said the events of January 6 played a role in his condition. Biden will also honor Capitol Police Officer Carolyn Edwards, who suffered a brain injury after being beaten by rioters. She testified before the January 6th House Select Committee in June.
3: When I fell behind that line and I saw I can just remember my my breath catching in my throat because I, what I saw was just a, a war scene it, it was something like I would seen out of the movies I, I, I couldn't believe my eyes there were officers on the ground um, you know they were bleeding they were throwing up they were you know they had uh, I mean I saw friends with blood all over their faces I was slipping in people's blood um, you know, I, I was catching people as they fell. I, you know, I was. It, it was carnage. It was chaos. I, I can't. I can't even describe what I saw.
0: The second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection comes as five members of the far-right group Proud Boys are on trial for seditious conspiracy, opening arguments expected next week. We're joined now by Andy Campbell, senior editor at HuffPost and the author of We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Andy, welcome back to Democracy Now!, it's great to have you with us. So today is the second anniversary. Two years ago today, the violent mob attacked the Capitol. And it is so interesting, as they stopped congressional proceedings then, for a time, that today, two years later, we're seeing the House paralyzed. No member of the House of Representatives can be sworn in, the new ones or the old ones. No one gets classified briefings, nothing, uh, because of what's happening here. Can you draw the parallel between who was involved two years ago and who is involved today?
4: Sure. And thanks, Amy, for having me on again. Look, we are seeing a GOP— that's hoist by its own petard. I mean, this is a uh, party that has built its identity around nationalism, around bigotry, around political violence, and particularly around trolling, not around policy necessarily. And so now you have these 20 holdouts who are that uh, uh, directive personified. You have people like uh, Lauren Bobert and and Marjorie Taylor Greene, and uh, you have uh, Paul Gosar, a a vowed sort of white nationalist character who pals around um, with extremists and and goes on. Uh, goes to white nationalist conferences to speak. And so you have these very extreme far-right voices throwing a wrench in the spokes. And this is exactly uh, what the MAGA party has built for themselves. And so they're kind of seeing the consequences of their own actions uh, when these holdouts are kind of holding Congress hostage. Uh, But what they're doing is, is they're you know, displaying power, uh, the the very far right, very racist, very loud and popular uh, troll wing of the GOP has sort of been building this parallel power structure alongside the GOP for years under Trump, and now with this you know four vote majority that Republicans have in the House, they're able to exercise that power um, by holding these uh, the the Speaker hostage here, and and so it's interesting that this is happening. On uh, you know the anniversary of January sixth, because those same people uh, who are holding Congress hostage now are are the same people who helped foment the insurrection and who, after the fact, still uh, cast doubt on the twenty twenty election. Many of them are uh, Trump loyalists and and election deniers and voted to overturn the election. And so what we're seeing is that the spirit of January 6th is still very much alive, and and we are seeing it play out uh, in the halls of Congress today.
0: So... (laughs) If you can talk about, uh, since you wrote the book, We Are Proud Boys, the connection between the pro-insurrectionist Congress members um, and the Proud Boys and talk about who they are. But I wanted to ask you about the people who are leading this movement right now. I mean, you have, what, Matt Gates, the congressman from Florida who is mm-hmm. under investigation for underage sex trafficking. You've got Lauren Boebert from—she uh, ran a restaurant in, what, rifle Colorado called Shooter's Grill. It's been shut down because the owners of the building wouldn't renew her lease. She encouraged her waiters to openly carry guns as they served uh, their customers. Uh, And now they've removed magnetometers. This is one of the demands of the of Boebert and the others in this ultra-conservative so-called Freedom Caucus from um, from the House. Uh, she had originally—I think it's the reason why House Speaker at the time, Nancy Pelosi, had put up magnetometers, said she was going to carry a Glock onto the floor of the House. Uh, looking at the New York Post, um, they said she refused to say Tuesday if she plans to bring a gun into the House of Representatives as authorities removed House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's magnetometers. From the entrances. Uh, Go through these people one by one and talk about their connection to Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, and what happened two years ago today.
4: Sure. I mean, uh, Lauren Boebert is sort of uh, leading the charge here on this ultra far right. A group of holdouts. She, you know, she also called Ilhan Omar a terrorist. I mean, if you try to look at Bobert's policies, uh, they are few and far between. A lot of these, uh, a lot of these guys want to push very nationalist policy. Uh, they want to uh, push the anti woke agenda. I think they want to uh, uh, criminalize. Uh, doctors who give gender-affirming care. So, these are sort of cruel policies, if you look really hard. But most of all, uh, these are sort of uh, bigoted trolls, very connected to uh, the insurrection. You have uh, Paul Gosar of Arizona, who, like I said, went on uh, to to speak at a white nationalist conference two years running alongside Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, he said at one point that he uh, fomented the revolution on January six. Uh, you have Matt Gates, uh, who has pushed uh, uh, white supremacist conspiracy theories about the replacement of white men, uh, and has also uh, had Proud Boys work security. At his events uh, over the years, uh, and so you have these characters are, are connected to the insurrection in the way that uh, that they believe uh, it was justified, or at least you know believe that the election was stolen. And then the Proud Boys are these foot soldiers that act on behalf of the GOP's grievances. And so while Boberts, the Boberts and Gates's and Marjorie Taylor Greens of America are pushing, uh, you know, anti-LGBTQ sentiment, uh, uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, the Proud Boys are mobilizing on these grievances. And certainly uh, we know that, that dozens of Proud Boys joined Hundreds of other extremists uh, uh, to make January six happen, and so there is absolutely a connection uh, there between the people sitting there in the house today and the proud boys and i you know I think it shows uh, that that you know what we're looking at happening out there isn't like Bobert isn't trying to make uh, uh, some real policy changes happen today. She's trying to uh, show power and show that this small group of ultra far right, uh, uh, you know, insurrectionists um, can wield powder, power in the Republican Party. And and the Proud Boys, um, being those foot soldiers, are sitting uh, in, in court uh, today. The jury's being selected for their seditious conspiracy trial. And it, what's interesting about that trial is that we're going to learn more about their connections to the GOP leading up to uh, January 6, because there are a number of Proud Boys who have already pleaded guilty, and they will be testifying against their own in that seditious conspiracy trial. So, we may learn more uh, about their connections to people like Roger Stone, Trump's top confidant, who counts the leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tario as one of his friends and mentees. Uh, we may learn more about the security that they did uh, for certain members of Congress, and, and we may learn more about their connection to Trump's inner circle. So, this is going to be a, a, a huge trial, and it's going to have big implications uh, for the GOP going forward.
0: So, tell us who the Proud Boys are, uh, who Enrique Tario and the at least four other Proud Boys who are on trial are—
4: Right. Uh, so, in the Proud Boys are a far-right street gang uh, that were launched in late 2016, early 2017. Uh, they were created on the far-right talk show of Gavin McGinnis, uh, who is also the co-founder of, of Vice Media. And he built them. Uh, to basically mobilize on Trump and the GOP's grievances and go out there and do what crusty old Republicans can't do and fight people in the street based on what the GOP is complaining about. And so on any given day, the complaint might change. Sometimes it's BLM. Sometimes it's Antifa. Sometimes it's LGBTQ. Right now, it's very much LGBTQ. Um, And and sometimes it's uh, the election. And they have mobilized over the years, over and over, based on those grievances. Now, there are five Proud Boys on trial for seditious conspiracy. The Justice Department believes that they had a hand not only in uh, uh, making the insurrection happen on the day, but planning it leading up. Uh, Trump, uh, during a debate in 2020, um, uh, said Proud Boys stand back, stand by. And there's some debate over what he meant by that. But the Proud Boys immediately took it as marching orders. One of the guys on trial, Joe Biggs, uh, posted a blog titled uh, The Second Civil War is Coming. He said, clean your guns, get ammo, uh, and be ready uh, because it's about to get really bad. Enrique Tario started raising funds, amassing weapons, uh, amassing people, recruiting. Uh, he said—he told me in an interview uh, that he'd never gotten so many recruiting calls uh, than in the moments after Trump said, stand back, stand by at that debate. So they were gearing up uh, for January 6th, which they saw— is their final stand for Trump, and they were doing what they do best, which is amassing all of these people, you know, different extremists from across the country, pulling them, telling them to show up on January 6th for Donald Trump. And then, of course, we know uh, from the January 6th committee's uh, uh, reports and, and the the convictions that have already happened um, that that once the plan uh, was in place once the insurrection began, uh, Trump did absolutely nothing to, to stop the, the mob and, in fact, incited them throughout the day uh, uh, to continue on this parade of violence. The I wanted to go of...
0: to a YouTube video created by Vic Berger back in 2018, which features Gavin McGinnis, the founder of the Proud Boys, discussing the group's origins, as well as calling for violence in the
4: streets. I started this gang called the Proud Boys. and Proud Boys? The Proud Boys. Uh, the Proud boys. What is the, what's Proud Boys about? We will kill you. That's the Proud Boys in a nutshell. We will kill you. We look nice. We seem soft. We have boys in our name. But like Bill the Butcher and the Bowery Boys, we will assassinate you. Now, part of the reason I agree to do the talk is because I'm allowed to bring all my guys. And we can fight our way in and fight our way out. I think it's our job to do it. And the cop could turn a blind eye.
0: So if you can talk about McGuinness and also this latest headline this week: um, NYPD facing new backlash after officers escorted members of the far right Proud Boys to a subway station, apparently helping them evade their fares after they sought to disrupt Drag Story Hour, a popular reading event for children at a Queens library um, last year. Um, and you know, you have them cracking down on um, uh, on. Fair evasion, flooding subway stations with police, but they're escorting the Proud Boys.
4: Right, right. So, uh, you know, who you heard right there is, is Gavin McGinnis. That guy you just heard is, is expected to possibly be a character witness for his Proud Boys at their sedition trial. So you can you, you can see uh, uh, what you know their ideology is. Their ideology is political violence. He put political violence in their rule set, um, and and. Certainly, the misogyny and anti-LGBTQ and, and racist sentiment is within their tenets. And so, he kind of created that worldview for the Proud Boys and unleashed them on the world. But, but like you said, with, you know, this incident in New York, uh, the, the Proud Boys have shown resiliency time and time again, despite being involved in all sorts of domestic extremism events. January 6th, and all of the hundreds of prosecutions Uh, that we've seen following that has done almost nothing to tamp down our street-level political violent uh, extremist sect. I mean, the Proud Boys are mobilizing today at Rapid Clip. Uh, You have Tucker Carlson on Fox News complaining about Drag Queen Story Hour, and the Proud Boys are going out in the street and harassing and attacking Drag Queen Story Hours. This isn't just in New York, it's all across the country, at public libraries and and anywhere they have drag events.
0: Well, I know, Andy, you're headed down to Washington, D.C., to cover this seditious conspiracy trial of the Proud Boys, and we hope to have you back on, Andy Campbell, senior editor at HuffPost, author of We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of America. American extremism. Coming up, the Russian president's call declared a 36-hour ceasefire in Ukraine. We'll hear from Bishop William Barber on why he supports a Christmas truce on both sides, back in 30 seconds.
3: Silent night, holy night.
2: All is calm. All is
0: bright. Yara Allen performing Silent Night. She's the director of theomusicology and cultural arts at Repairers of the Breach. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russian President Vladimir Putin's unilaterally declared a 36-hour ceasefire in Ukraine to mark Russian Orthodox Christmas, which will be celebrated Saturday. In Kiev, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky rejected Putin's truce, saying Russia wants to use Christmas as a pretext to stop Ukrainian advances in the Russian-occupied Donbass
3: region.
0: They now want to use Christmas as a cover, albeit briefly,
2: to stop the advances of our boys in Donbass and bring equipment, munitions and mobilized troops closer to our positions. What will that give them? Only yet another increase in their total losses.
0: On the streets of Kyiv, Ukrainians also express skepticism over Putin's ceasefire.
3: I think this is utter hypocrisy. On the 31st of December, there was no peace. We were under
2: such bombing for New Year's Eve. Just hypocrisy on Putin's side.
4: This is some unfunny joke. In the history of our country, there were so many times that we trusted the Russians. And this never led to anything good. We can't trust them, and we have to be cautious.
3: I don't believe Russian President Vladimir Putin will go through with the ceasefire. We celebrated New Year's under bombs and missiles. I couldn't go anywhere with my daughter. There was peace for an hour or two, and that's
0: it. Vladimir Putin's announcement about a 36-hour ceasefire comes as calls grow for an end to the devastating war which began when Russia invaded Ukraine February 24th. On Thursday, the Turkish president, Tayyip Erdogan, spoke to both Putin and Zelensky by phone. Turkey's offered to mediate between the two countries. Here in the U.S., over a thousand faith leaders recently called for a Christmas truce in Ukraine. The signatories included, yes, members of the Russian Orthodox Church, but also the Reverend Jesse Jackson and Bishop William Barber. We turn now to hear Bishop William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign in his own words. During an event organized by repairers of the breach, Barber gave a sermon Christmas Eve titled, No War, A Moral Call for a Christmas Truce. After reflecting on the Christmas Truce in 1914 during World War One, Barber said now is the time for a ceasefire in Ukraine.
2: We desperately need a ceasefire and negotiations to end the brutal Russian war in Ukraine today like Rachel in the Bible and Pope Francis, who just the other day wept in public over this war. We must mourn publicly over the war. And something is terribly wrong in our churches and how of worship if we try to have Christmas without doing that. Listen to the Pope's prayer. Immaculate Virgin, Today I would have wanted to bring you the thanks of the Ukrainian people for peace. This is what he said before he was overwhelmed by emotion. And then he said, instead, once again, I have to bring you the pleas of children, the pleas of the elder, the pleas of the fathers and the mothers, the pleas of the young people of the martyred land, which is suffering so much. The report President Zelensky brought to Congress this week sounded like a modern day description of the context in which Isaiah prophesied Russia, he said, has turned the Ukrainian sky into a source of death for thousands of people. Russian troops have fired 1000 missiles at Ukraine and they use drones to kill us with precision. We need a ceasefire to interrupt this warring madness. A ceasefire doesn't mean both sides are equally culpable for starting the war. But it can have the impact of stopping the massive, massive killing on both sides numbers are difficult to find but it is clear that at least thousands of Ukrainian civilians and many tens of thousands Ukrainian and Russian military forces have been killed already. A ceasefire could stop the killing. A ceasefire is not the same as an end to war, but it can set the stage for the more long-term diplomatic action that can lead to a long-term peace. A ceasefire for as long as it holds means that no one is being killed by war, and that means maybe, just maybe, the difficult work of beginning serious negotiations can go forward. We do need a ceasefire in Ukraine. In fact, the question might be, when do we need a ceasefire in Ukraine? And we might answer, we have needed a ceasefire since February 24th, exactly 11 months ago today, when Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, yes, some say that the U.S. government provoked Moscow by expanding NATO to the east and stationing nuclear weapons in Europe. But even if that is true, it is also true that none of these provocations justify Russia's invasion. Russia's war is illegal, immoral, deadly, and dangerous. The day Russia began seizing Ukrainian territory and killing Ukrainian civilians, we needed a ceasefire. When Ukrainian troops began turning the tables and started reclaiming some of the lost territory, we needed a ceasefire to prevent more death and destruction. We needed a ceasefire then, and we need a ceasefire today. Why? First, because the human cost especially for the Ukrainian civilians, is too high. This is not a contest of wheels on a battlefield. It is a struggle for control that takes place every day in the places where people live and work and worship and go to school. The war is in the streets and in the homes. Too many elders, too many children, too many babies and men and women are dying as consequences of this war. But Ukrainians are not the only people being hurt by this war. The economic impact is dire, especially on the poor risk people in the global south, the people who are facing more hunger and more cold as a result of this war. Truth is, our whole planet is at risk as the war leads to an increase. And fossil fuels being mined and shipped around the globe. And whenever countries spend more on war, there's always less money available for things that actually keep us safer. We need a ceasefire in every war being fought around the world. The fragile ceasefire in Yemen is barely holding. We need ceasefires in Sudan and South Sudan and Somalia, in Mali, in Myanmar and Iraq and beyond. Many wars are being waged in the name of fighting against terrorism or against drug cartels or against domestic opponents. And in many of these wars, we can see the impact in complicated ways where U.S. arms are being used by both sides, however they got them. And despite our own government's humanitarian work, great in many ways, we cannot ignore the historians, political scientists, the media reports, and even some military officials who have shown how some of our actions in history and some of our actions in the present have imposed economic and security policies around the world that have resulted in desperate poverty, environmental catastrophe, Refugee crisis, authoritarian rulers, and more. We have a moral obligation to stop supporting wars and call for a work for ceasefire. Way back in our own civil war on these lands, a general by the name of William Sherman said to those anxious to engage in war. I have been where you are now and I know just how you feel. It's entirely natural that there should be in the breast of every one of you a hope and a desire that someday you can use the skills you have acquired here, but suppress it. He said to these young troops, you don't know the horrible aspects of war. I've been through two wars and I know I've seen cities and homes in ashes. I've seen thousands of men lying on the ground, their dead faces looking up at the skies. And I tell you, war is hell. And it was America's general president, Dwight Eisenhower, who said when he was leaving office, the conjunction of an immense military establishment of a large arms industry is new in the American experience. And yet we must not fail to comprehend its great implications in the councils of government. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether salt or unsalt by the military-industrial complex, and at first he said, the congressional military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. And the other night, even in the midst of his request for more weapons, President Zelensky did slip in a prophetic word, or may I say the spirit slipped in a prophetic word if we were paying attention. He said, being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. This must be deeply wrestled with in this complex and contrary world. We need ceasefires everywhere. According to Brown University's Watson Institute, nearly a million people have died in the post-9-11 wars. 38 million people have been displaced by war forced to flee their homes and communities to try to make a life somewhere else. The Poor People's Campaign found that the U.S. alone has spent 21 trillion dollars on war, military rise, borders, and incarceration over the past two decades. Money we haven't invested in affordable housing, green infrastructure, healthcare, education, labor rights, and living wages. The cost of war is too high. We need ceasefires everywhere. Militarism is central to all of the interconnected injustices that we fight against. Military spending diverts funds away from desperately needed social programs, from healthcare to childcare, from jobs to sustainable energy, from elder care to education and more. Even now, we are passing a spending package that does not include living wages. For the more than fifty five million poor and low wage workers in this country, it does not include health care for the more than eighty seven million people without health care or underinsured. And we now know that over three hundred thousand people have died so far from covid because of the lack of health care, not because of the germ or the virus and thousands more have died because of how poor and unprotected they were not because of the power of the virus. And we are passing a budget that includes more money for the war economy than ever in history. We're doing it without passing protections for voting rights, without restoring the Voting Rights Act that Lyndon Baines Johnson said when it was won was the greatest victory in this country, even of all of our military victories. And because we're doing this, It leaves us with an impoverished democracy. We need a ceasefire. This year, military budget will top $858 billion, a sum greater than the entire national budgets of 174 countries around the world, including such wealthy nations as Turkey, the Netherlands, Saudi Arabia, and Switzerland just a small percentage of that money could provide living wages for every American, could provide health care for every American, could pro- provide childcare. And in a country so rich that we waste hundreds of billions of dollars, we still have tens of millions of children living in poverty, going to sleep hungry. It's a moral crime. And Christmas, the prophecy and the prophetic truths of Christmas demand that we interrupt this madness. Call for ceasefires. Say this does not have to be. So, we need a ceasefire for the people of Ukraine. We need a ceasefire for the poor and hurting people around the world. Wherever there's war and violence, whether that war and violence is because of greed, or lust for power, or racism or anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or homophobia. We need a ceasefire. And finally, we need a ceasefire in Ukraine right now because we are facing the most serious threat of nuclear escalation in 60 years. Russia and the United States together Hold 90% of all the nuclear weapons in the world. Each side has enough nuclear weapons and nuclear firepower to destroy the whole world several times over. And that's incredibly dangerous for flawed human beings own to lead the God we say we love to have that kind of power. Not only because of Russia's reckless nuclear threats and not only because of Washington's trillion dollar investment in strengthening and modernizing its nuclear arsenal. We need a ceasefire because I, I don't believe either Washington or Moscow is planning a deliberate nuclear attack. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. Unlike other war zones where the U.S. and Russian forces have faced each other, there is no U.S. Russian military to military hotline to avoid accidental escalation. They've had that in Syria, but they don't have it in Ukraine. An accidental move on either side could escalate to a nuclear exchange, it's not likely, but when we're talking about potential nuclear war, any threat that isn't zero is simply too large. More than a half a century ago, even before his speech in 1967, Dr. King said that the trajectory of modern war persuaded him that war could no longer be imagined as a negative good, a necessary evil to prevent some greater harm. The potential, he said, destructiveness of modern weapons Totally rules out the possibility of war ever again, achieving a negative good. He said, if we assume that mankind has a right to survive, then we must find an alternative to war and destruction. Because we stand in life at midnight. We're always on the threshold of a new dawn. But our own sinfulness and actions could keep us from getting there. We need a ceasefire in order to make an honest assessment of where we are. As Gandhi once said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And maybe we can see it if we could pause for a moment. Count the cost. If we could just stop closing our eyes and turning our eyes away and look at the bodies and the blood and the brokenness and assess the destruction. And maybe for our sake and our children's sake, a ceasefire could help us realize that the world needs an anti-war coalition. If we're gonna be the world as possible. If we can put our weapons down for just one night, then maybe we could put them down for one tomorrow. And if we could put them down for one tomorrow, maybe we could put them down for one week. And if we could put them down for one week, maybe we could put them down for one month. And if we could put them down for one month, maybe we could put them down for one year and study war no more. And maybe studying war no more doesn't just have to be in the after and eternal life. We have power to stop the madness. We can stop it today, we can stop it tomorrow. And so if we want to welcome the Prince of Peace. We can't give up hope. We've got to dare to commemorate, remember, and praise God even in the midst of all of the warring madness. Now is the time for Christmas truth. Now is the time to try let the word go out it happened a hundred and eight years ago they are no more human and no stronger than we are all it requires is listening to the spirit and just stop just stop stop cease firing Let the night go silent and hear the voice of God until the night becomes holy without the sound of war.
0: Bishop William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign and Repairers of the Breach giving a sermon on Christmas Eve. Bishop Barber recently joined with over a 1,000 faith leaders in the United States calling for a Christmas truce in Ukraine. Other signatories include the Reverend Jesse Jackson of Rainbow Push, Professor Corno West of Union Theological Seminary, Rabbi Arthur Waskow of the Jewish Renewal Movement, Reverend Jim Wallace of the Georgetown Center on Faith and Justice, Reverend Liz Theoharis of the Cairo Center for Religion. They pop on the Plum Village Buddhist Community. Bishop William Barber spoke at the Greenleaf Christian Church in Goldsboro, North Carolina, where he's been pastor for 30 years. He just announced he's retiring as the church's pastor to become the founding director of the new Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School. That does it for our show. To see the whole speech, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.